Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jessie. And I'm Kelly. In this episode, we discuss House of Salt and Sorrows by Aaron A. Craig. The novel follows Annalie, one of the 12 daughters of an aristocratic family whose members keep dying mysteriously. The story takes many unexpected twists and turns as Annalie tries to figure out what is happening to her family. I don't know if this is a standalone novel. Do you know? I think I saw on Goodreads that someone had said that it was a standalone novel or Aaron A. Craig was answering a question from someone on Goodreads and said, at the moment, it's standalone. Okay. What did you think? In the beginning, I really enjoyed this book. It was a little more scary than the books I'm used to because I'm a huge baby. That kind of <laughs> stuff. I would call it horror adjacent, like maybe PG-13 horror-esque. Uh, but the ending felt a little off to me. And I'm feeling unsure about the depiction of what might be considered mental illness in the story. What ramifications does the ending have for that? I think I like the idea of the story and I enjoyed the execution of the story right up until the end. And the prologue didn't really explain epilogue yep the epilogue didn't really explain <laughs> what happened to cassius maybe all things that were changed when the finished copy w- was published so when this episode is released but from the arc i would say i initially really liked it and it was really exciting and i didn't know where each twist and turn was going to take me but i was a little disappointed with the ending what about you i agree with everything you just mentioned <laughs> And I certainly had some issues with the novel, which we're obviously going to talk about. That's like why this show exists. But I would read Craig's next books because of the world building. I'm going to rave about it in a second. But I I thought that that was one of the most intriguing aspects of the novel for me. Agreed. Time to talk about all things world building and through the wardrobe. So... This book has a lot of death in it. (laughs) Yeah. Which I'm not exactly opposed to. Like, it does seem to go with, like, you know, I'm wearing my skeleton leggings today. So it's (laughs) it's fitting. But there's a long period of mourning for people who have died. So the family is constantly in a state of mourning. They've been in a state of mourning for five years. So they have one year of mourning, which kind of puts their life on hold. Um, No parties, no celebrations, no marriages. The girls can't like come out into society while this is happening, which is just means they can't be like sold as possessions. But exactly. Whatever. I mean, either way, the whole thing is like fucked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the periods of mourning feel like they're all for show in the book. And so much that the family has been in mourning for so long that the grief has lost its meaning to many members of the family. Um, I did some Kelly-esque things and looked into a lot of things this episode, like a lot of different subjects, which we'll all put in the show notes. (laughs) I'm so ready to learn. (laughs) But a lot of different cultures and religions have different mourning rituals. And I did a small amount of research on them. It was interesting to hear what other people do. And we'll link to it in the show notes for those that are interested. But the morning in this book seemed to follow along the lines of rituals in the Victorian age. So wearing black, covering mirrors, um, wearing like bands around their arms, that sort of thing. I know that the mirror covering is also part of Jewish morning traditions. I think the things I looked up cover things for like Christians, Muslims, Jewish, Chinese culture, Japanese culture. So there's a lot of different things mm-hmm. like what people do with bodies and how they're treated when they die which was cool. Yeah. 
thanks for doing the research yeah i'm excited to learn more and dig in i know i'm also like it got me thinking like what what do i want done to me when i die you can get composted did you know that i didn't yeah you can like the compost become dirt oh that's kind of cool it's really cool I think I want to be cremated, but I don't think it's very environmentally friendly. Hence where the composting comes in. It's better for the environment. I think that you make a good point about how the morning seems superficial. And that is one of Annalie's criticisms of her family's behavior. Right. Is that aren't y'all feeling things anymore? We wear these things and cover the mirrors and do all this in symbolic gestures, but it's supposed to have like a... It's supposed to be tethered to some sort of greater emotional or spiritual processing of a death. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really seem that way. No, and I guess it's kind of similar to the way that we see in the United States in particular, how people get desensitized to certain acts of violence from seeing them on the news because they're happening all the time. And I'm guessing that if so many people in your life kept dying... Other than thinking that you were cursed, you'd probably get kind of desensitized to the whole process a little bit. And be like, I want to go to the ball. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd really... No, I wouldn't, but... But that's what these characters are doing. Yeah. Also, it'd be cool because I could wear black all the time and it would be socially acceptable. Like, I would like to just stay in that period of mourning forever. That seems cool. <laughs> I'd like to do all those things. Maybe we should all be in perpetual mourning for, like, our mass extinction event that we're in right, right now, for example. Yeah. yeah. And, like, covering the mirrors, like, we wouldn't have to deal with, like, beauty standards. Mm -mm. Those sorts of things would be nice. Like, that seems like maybe we should just treat life a little more. There are a lot of things to be sad and angry about. Exactly. Agreed. In the book, the family is polytheistic. Uh, They have chosen one god above all others, Pontus, who I looked up and was a pre-Olympian sea god. Cool. I didn't realize when we were reading that that was real. But they believe in the other gods who actually interfere in human affairs. So there's a couple of times where they said that this goddess came and was at this party and she saved us from a fire or whatever, which was kind of cool. Or the dressmaker had one of the goddesses come and that was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. The religious system was one of the most fascinating parts of the novel for me, actually. Maybe I'm just learning this about myself and I'm just a sucker for fantastical and different types of religions. The mentions of the all the rituals, the stories, the architecture sprinkled throughout the book, I thought that those were so great because they transported me to this fictional world. And I was really intrigued by how involved the gods were in the affairs of mortals or not. And I just wish that had been fleshed out more in the novel, actually. Right. I got a feeling of, and I, I know it works out because pontus was like a pre-olympian god but i just got like a feeling of like greek mythology kind of wrapped up in all of this Mm -hmm. which i really enjoyed but yeah i don't think it was fleshed out as much as i would have liked it to be yeah i thought that was a really rich part of the story and the world there is so much opulence in this world that part of the world building was really effective for me i I mean we're gonna get into class a lot later but i thought that this was really well portrayed in all the settings and how how they were described in so much detail, all the different rooms and the furnishings and the jewels and the dresses. And I guess I was basically just imagining Downton Abbey meets Iron Islands in the Game of Thrones mm-hmm, meets mm-hmm. Louis the Sixteenth's French court. Yes. I really like this part of the novel because I love stories set in this time, even though there's a lot of issues there. But like, I love the balls and seeing all the cool dresses and like, 
I don't know. It seems like really cool to me, even though I would never want to live through that. <laughs> like it sounds terrible, but I really like seeing all the like. She did a really good job of describing it all. Like I could picture it all in my head. Definitely. However, comma, I was confused about the chronological aspects of the world building. It seems like it was pulling from a lot of different chronologies mm-hmm. in order to create this um, fictional world. So like a lot of different cultural references from different historical moments that I guess I was just a little bit confused about how those were all working together. And maybe that was just because I wasn't getting it. Mm-hmm. But is the society Victorian? The etiquette, wardrobe, and household decor seem to suggest so. But there is also, you know, could have been earlier, like Louis the Sixteenth. Mm-hmm. That's before Victorian era. But the gaslighting and indoor plumbing are re- added like a little steampunk element in there, which is obviously related to the Victorian era. Steampunk right. is like a riff off of that. But there are also aspects that felt medieval or even like pre-modern, like the deals with the gods or the crypt. And maybe I'm way off base here. What did you think? I think because I am so terrible at history, I was just like, this all makes (laughs) sense. This is fine. Like, I don't know. I can never keep in my head anything that's not like ancient or modern in between that time. I'm like, I don't know when the fuck that happened. I have no idea. Those two words in themselves, ancient and modern, are incredibly expansive, right? And so that they encompass a lot. Right. So I can't keep it all together in my head. Like, when I think about reading Pride and Prejudice, I have no idea when that took place. I don't know. I'm I'm just really bad at history and keeping track of years. So I just am like, yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> it, I know it happened. I don't know when. And so I think as like part of our my training as like a literary critic mm-hmm. and you, you get into like the history and contextualizing is really important. And I think I was just a little bit unmoored. Like, where am I drawing from? What is this? Where for What's me? Going on? Because I don't know. I'm like, yeah, all these things could be happening at the same time. You're floating along happily. Yeah, yes. It's easier for me to suspend my disbelief when things don't line up because I'm like, I don't know. In um, Akamath, like they have toilets. Like Feyre's like throwing up in a bathroom, but everything else seems like super old. And I'm like, when were toilets invented? And like, is this even possible? I don't know. But it's also like, it's not in a real time. So who cares when toilets were invented? That's yeah. my problem with myself, right? Because right. I'm like, this is fiction. This shouldn't matter. Yeah. But for some reason, my brain is like, does not compute. <laughs> and for me, I'm like, I read Akamath and I think I had to look up when toilets were invented. And I don't think it lined up in my head with like how this society worked. But I'm just like, whatever, it's fine. Who knows when this is supposed to take place? It's fiction. It's not real. Was there a map? I didn't have one in my arc. So, but it would have been super helpful. Yes. That was my, that's all I wanted to mention. <laughs> a map would have been good. I hope there's a map somewhere someday that I can consult. I should have checked on the author's website because sometimes authors put them on there, but I didn't. I'll look it up. It'll be in the show notes. When I was reading this, I got Serious Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti vibes. Have you read that poem? It's so good. I love that poem. I had the exact same thought when I was reading this. I'm definitely going to reread it. I'm not sure I'll reread it. I also remember being like super depressed after I read it. (laughs) (laughs) I read it in college for a class and I think I wrote a paper on it, but I also really liked it a lot. That like sisterly bond stuff is like going on a lot in this story. Definitely. And the, what do the goblins want? Do you know, are you being, you know, transfixed essentially and duped by these magical creatures i loved love loved all the lighthouse stuff i know it wasn't like a huge part of the novel 
I think when I was a kid, because I'm from the East Coast, we would go to like this museum that had a lighthouse and you could go up into it and see like how the lights worked and like all that kind of stuff. So I kind of grew up near the ocean. So this was really cool to me. I liked all the seafaring things. It's a little nostalgic for you, it sounds like. Yeah. Plus, I love the ocean. Like, I like going fishing. Like, and I don't think we often get depictions of female characters who are like going out in boats, who are doing fishing, who know all this stuff about the ocean, which is normally seen as like a man's world. Moana. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Moana is a good one. I love Moana. But we don't get those that many of those stories. So I kind of liked that aspect of it. Definitely. Lighthouses are cool and apparently not used very much anymore, which is sad. It is sad. You know. It did seem like they could have figured out a more efficient system for the lighthouse if it's so integral oh, yeah. in the actual story. I'm just kind of like, well, why didn't we, I don't know, if you can turn on gas lights, why can't you just like perpetually power the lighthouse? Oh. Why do we have to like be moving kerosene? Because they only can take a certain amount of kerosene into it. But then just make something better. (laughs) Just like make it so that it's, I don't know, not as cumbersome. It makes sense to you because you live in 2019 where like like 100 years ago, you probably would have gone back in time and be like, why don't you guys just invent a telephone? (laughs) Why don't you have the internet? Why don't you guys just text? Yeah. (laughs) It's because it was a long time ago. Why don't you all just FaceTime and then you'll know everyone's fine. Right. Or in the beginning of the book, I didn't understand why the lighthouse was so far away, but apparently they're put in places that are dangerous to sailors so that they can see what's going on around them. Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, why isn't the lighthouse just closer to where you all live so people can get to it more easily? It's not how lighthouses (laughs) work. (laughs) Except that, yeah, there's a guy who can apparate. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Weird. Cosmaris, the harbinger of madness and nightmares excellent name excellent title yeah well i looked it up and according to google translate it means nightmare in lithuanian so if anyone speaks lithuanian let me know if that would be awesome just tell us (laughs) (laughs) yeah also yeah just tell us but i thought that was really cool and i really liked i know she's kind of part of the magic of the world but cool character definitely real dark a little out of control. Just call me the harbinger of nightmares. <laughs> That's more you, actually. I was going to say, have you like you're wearing pink and purple right now, like two very bright colors. I'm not wearing pink. I can see it on your straps. Oh yeah, yeah. Never mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly's like the most colorful person I know. <laughs> we are that uh, tweet on Twitter. Yes, where it's like the one sister in all black That's and me. the one sister with rainbow hair. That's Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. Many of the things I made notes about being part of the magic of this world, ghosts, magic, traveling portals, weren't actually magic at all. Um, They were visions sent from Cosmaris. The only magic that turns out to be really real is Cassius' ability to teleport. Apparate. (laughs) It's apparate. (laughs) Uh, Because he's a demigod and Cosmaris' ability to make people see things that aren't real, which was a little disappointing that all the bigger magic wasn't actually real. It did give a little bit of this um sense of, oh, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. I mean, it's not as explicit as that in the novel, but now that I'm reflecting after having finished it and going back, it's kind of like, oh, but it is magic and yet it isn't, but it also is. 
is confusing to me. There are like very small parts that were really magic. Right. Like uh, Morella being impregnated by a demon. <laughs> Melisandre-ing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was real creepy. That and was. I was like, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, Cassius can... Wait, is that his name? Yeah. Cassius can apparate, which was weird. Yeah. And he's like demigods, like randomly. I don't know. I, I, I think that they didn't... Mm, it wasn't quite apparent how involved the gods were or right. how like actually real they were in this world right. or if they're more symbolic but no they're actually like flesh and bone or they're made of some sort of matter and they can affect human existence and they can also like conceal themselves it was very there was a lot of like deus ex machina going on right which i'm not sure how i feel about that but we do see Again, in this novel, like we saw in Children of Blood and Bone and lots of the other novels that we've read, that magic is intricately tied up in the religious system and right. is related to immortal slash divine beings. Which is really interesting because Morella doesn't seem to believe in the same gods that uh, the family believes in, the Thomas family. She comes from somewhere else and has some kind of different beliefs going on, which was also odd because the gods can literally appear to you. So doesn't that mean that they are definitely real? That kind of thing is like kind of confusing to me when it's, we can see them and talk to them and touch them. Like they're physically in our worlds, but other people don't believe in them. That That's like hard for me to wrap my head around. I got the sense that they, other people in the world believed in the gods, but that it was more like, um, Kind of like how in Greek mythology you would have like different cults that celebrate Athena or whatever. Mm. And so you have like different devotees. Right. And we saw this with the Abbey mm-hmm. when Cassius apparates Annalie to the right. Abbey that's like his mom's church or something. Yeah. And then Temple. all of the nuns are there. It, just, it seemed like it, I, the religious part, again, I wanted it fleshed out. Yeah. I think maybe because so many of us have some sort of knowledge of Greek mythology from learning about it in school. Like I know I learned about it in like elementary school. Mm-hmm. Maybe the author assumes that people will have that base knowledge and that will be enough to get them through with this novel. But I wanted more. Didn't seem like there were a lot of, I guess, everyday sort of religious rituals. It was right. more like all we saw was really the morning rituals. But mm-hmm. what do you do? Is it only about death or what do we do? when like happy things happen yeah or the churning that was the other thing oh we saw, yeah that's a good point which had to do with seasons changing which makes sense but I, it seems like they always tie their religious aspects up in pontus so that was kind of confusing because mm-hmm. does he both make all the seasons happen or is it like different gods for different seasons that i just wasn't sure they seem to be kind of like god's Related to a specific ecosystem, right? Because right. Pontus is this sea god, mm-hmm. essentially. But then they had other gods in the mountains or the god of the sun or the right. light. It kind of reminded me how Prithian is split up in Sarah J. Mass's novels by right. season. And then also the kinds of religious rituals that happen there are very much tied to what's going on in the land and the nat- the ecosystem like locally. Right. Which I thought was actually like a fascinating part of this novel, the churning and celebrating it's it's like connecting the magic and the religion to the earth. It's all connected to like the cycles of the earth and how you're what's happening year after year. I loved right. how cyclical and like pagan it was. Yeah, that it was, was awesome. <laughs> it was super pagan. Magic in this novel is really a tool for coercion, 
but it's specifically targeting a person's mind. And I think this part of the magical system in particular is what steers the book towards psychological thriller or mm-hmm. horror adjacent to use your phrase because you don't <laughs> the blurring the lines between what's going on IRL for mm-hmm. Annalie versus what other people can see and what she can only see and then she's having visions and hallucinating like that's what really makes the novel particularly it gives it this feeling of being perturbing and upsetting right. and unsettling which is what it wants to do it wants right. to do that to you it's a horror adjacent novel yes there were some parts of the book where I was like, uh, I need to read one more chapter so this isn't too scary before I go to sleep. It's too much for me. We see bargains again between mortals and immortals. <laughs> and they rarely work out for the humans because they quite literally have less magical power. Also because humans don't think all the way through their words. They don't know the importance of their words. Maybe that's because they haven't lived as long so they don't have the time to like learn how to make these bargains in the way that in this novel, I guess, I don't know. Are they gods also? I don't know. Yeah. But in other novels, it's fairies. People just don't think about how things can be taken literally Mm -hmm. with, with their words. Right. I think that taps into this thread, I guess, that we also saw in Holly Black's Folk of the Air series, like Cruel Prince, Wicked King. And then I'm sure this will be in Queen of Nothing too when it comes out. It taps into, I guess, a sort of commonality in humans, which is like our hubris, you know, right? being so focused on what you want in the immediate future and then not analyzing all the different components, not being as forward thinking. I mean, right. just think about climate apocalypse is essentially is a really good example, right? right. Is that I'm like, no, but I want my hamburger now. I want my yeah. fast food right now rather yeah. than thinking about long term impacts. Agreed. Yeah, humans just aren't that, you know, they're not mentally prepared to deal with gods and fairies. <laughs> or like long-term consequences. Yeah. Yeah, they're not good at thinking about their future selves or future <laughs> generations. And, and here we are. And here we are. Yeah, we're all going to die. Womp womp. <laughs> Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. Okay, we have Morella, Cosmaris, and the Trickster. Do you remember if the Trickster had a name? Visconti. That's it. Something. Okay. Something like that. Started with a V. Yeah. Yeah. Viscardi. Viscardi. That's yes, it. that's it. Um, the villainy in this book really centers around the deal Morella made to get married and have a son, which doesn't work out for her in the end in any way shape or form i can see how this might be turned into a next book because the trickster ends up with his demon baby (laughs) yes what are the repercussions of that demon baby Um, repercussions (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of the things that i thought were like villainous in the beginning turned out to not be at all related by the end yeah morella um ends up melisandre-ing this is a new verb i've just made up to refer to when one makes a deal with super with a supernatural being and gives birth to a demon baby. Game of Thrones reference for those unaware. <laughs> spoiler alert. And spoiler. <laughs> it's like season four. At this point, it's just too late. Oh, it's definitely too late. This bargain didn't really make sense to me, I guess. Deals with tricksters were hinted at but not explained. Like here's the again where I was like, I wasn't sure how much the immortals were really involved in human life. But because like it's very clear in some other in other series. And I, I, I don't know. I think it like 
if it were obvious from the outset, then that would have been made it easier to suspend disbelief for me on this part. Um, but because the hints like weren't, it was hinted at, but not explained like this sort of interaction between gods and mortals. I was, the deal seemed a little bit out of the blue for me. I wish that the trickster weren't the villain because trickster gods are really pretty wonderful and intriguing figures the world over. They like show up in a ton of, exactly. They show up in a ton of different mythological traditions in a lot of different indigenous traditions. There are different tricksters, usually exemplified by animals, fables from European folklore. And I don't know. I just think that the trickster is much more than They're more evil. fun. Like I know that it's like, they're doing bad things, obviously, but they also, there's like an element of fun to it that I think we don't get in this story. And I think part of the confusion and upsetting part about the trickster being the villain is that we couldn't have known the trickster was the villain in any way, shape or form to begin with. At the end, they kind of tie it all up with, oh, Morella is actually from this place, which is where this flower came from. But we had no way of knowing where that flower came from or how it was related to the place in the mountains that she had lied about being from. Yeah, it was just like supposed to be a hint, but I'm like, I don't really get what this clue, like, why? We couldn't have understood it because that flower came from the place, which is related to that trickster in some way, shape, or form, which I didn't understand. But we couldn't have known that because we don't have access to that information about the world. Exactly. Which was unfortunate and maybe in the final copy of the book that'll be more explained and fleshed out but I don't actually know how that would even be possible yeah I'm not sure how that would really work and also did Morella end up killing their mom yes that was a big you know bombshell that they just kind of slipped in there well and it's kind of hard because Morella was a midwife and she says that their mom would have died either way. And what she was doing was making it happen faster and less painfully. So part of me is like, is that really that bad then? I guess it depends on whether Morella is lying to the girls and herself about whether she could have survived. The reason why I think this fits under like the get me Kylo Ren section is because it's not just like some beatific like oh i'm doing this for the good of humanity to make her feel better she wanted to get into the duke's pants yeah faster yes i don't know that was like complicated for me because if she was going to die anyway then what does it matter but if that's not true i don't know i'd rather have a painless death than a drawn out terrible one Mm mm-hmm but I think this gets to the larger point about Morella and predatory female sexuality mm-hmm. being portrayed as villainous. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not the first time we've seen this dynamic play out in the novels we've read for the podcast, right? Ianthe and Amarantha are two of the biggest what the biggest examples I can think of. Or even Melisandre to an extent. <laughs> totally. Totally. But Morella has to trick the dad slash duke. I don't remember his name. Sorry, not sorry. No, me either. Um, Orton, maybe? That's it. Orton. Orton. Marilla has to trick him into being with her because of this like bullshit patriarchal double standard that dudes can fuck whomever they please without facing consequences. But she's, you know, going to be destitute or whatever if she's been, you know, it seemed like you have to sex is only okay in marriage in this system, in this society. Right. So she was going to be another one of those spurned working class girls Mm -hmm. that high class dudes that are older 
and cis and hetero take advantage of. Yeah, I 100% agree. Their dad is terrible. Like the daughters in the beginning really look up to him, or at least Annalie does. And in the end, I'm like, he is abusive. He is like lying. He's not taking his kids seriously when things are going wrong with them. Like He's possessive. Yeah, he's a shitty dad. Blech. You should break up with him. <laughs> break up with your dads if they're terrible or your parents in general. Don't need that toxicity in your life. Hashtag boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of gaslighting in this novel. Oh, my God. So much. I just don't even know where to begin here. So I guess <laughs> I'll just like throw a dart and try and hit like a few of these like really egregious examples. Right. Fisher was gaslighting Annalie. Do you remember this? Well, it kind of started out with him not believing that something was going on with the sisters dying. Right. Like, he didn't think that was real. And then he seemed really weird about it when she started, like, liking Cassius or whatever. And now we know that Fisher was possessed the whole time. He wasn't even real. He was dead the whole time. That was just, like, a vision. Or was she, like, walking around in his, like, puppet body? Oh. Because Mara, like, walking around and making everyone delusional. Oh. I don't know. I'm not sure. But then it also made it seem like Annalie was completely hallucinating because the other people had said that they had gone to a funeral, but that ended up being a trick also at the end. It was definitely a mindfuck. Yeah, it was kind of confusing. It's like, I'm not sure now what was vision and what was real some of it i can tell but not all of it and if that's the effect that the book was trying to produce it did it very yeah (laughs) it uh did that effectively yeah agreed it made this effect effective yeah (laughs) there was also a lot of gaslighting from slender man yeah which is what i've decided to call this cardi the trickster i just imagined slender man i don't know what i imagined I don't know. Just like this weird, super tall, lanky, long fingers, nondescript. Yeah. Internet ghost. Creep. <laughs> okay. And making, but he was like making Annalie dance when she didn't want to, which is like goes with that fairy trope that we saw from Holly right. Black's novels. Like the humans can't stop dancing. So you have to be careful. Exactly. Or eat the food, which turned out to be like gross. Oh, that really gross. That's disgusting. It reminded me of the, um, what was it? Headless Hunt from Harry Potter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the Slender Man dude was all like weird and touchy and like creepy and props the kind of dude who would sniff people's hair behind them. Cough, Joe Biden. Cough. So fucking weird. <laughs> it was just gross and honestly seemed normalized within the context of the novel because Annalie would, like that coercion worked. The right. gaslighting worked. The coercion worked. It was just well, we, very, very unsettling to me. It didn't seem like she had agency over herself no. and her own mind. Well, and then we see that guy who's like trying to figure out what's happening to the girl's shoes so he can marry one of them. Oh, and he's like gross. in her room and like under the table trying to look at her shoes. But nobody's putting a stop to it at all. I'm just like all the dudes in this novel were like gross. Just like go home. Yes. I'm in like any of them. No, neither did I. They're all terrible. <laughs> What are we supposed to do with this curse business? It was kind of dangled out there. Um, is Not it just kind a... of. It, like the whole thing. That's true. They won't shut up about this stupid curse. Is it a red herring then? Does the family just have really shitty luck? I'm confused. Well, I guess the hard part is it seemed like maybe some of the people, like some of the family died and that was just accidents. And then. But also how are they all dying in order? 
like in reverse order of birth. What's well, funny because they're getting first, picked off from oldest to youngest. For a while, I thought it was Camille because I thought she wanted to be the one to like take over. That would the have house. been a really interesting twist. Yeah, but it's then it seemed like maybe it's too obvious that that's what she wanted because she's like really revels in the idea of being that the person that inherits the Thomas house and mm-hmm. being in charge and all that stuff. So, which is allowable but i mean don't kill your siblings for it maybe maybe depends on your siblings i guess (laughs) i don't think there's a curse i think it's a red herring i don't know there's no reason why they couldn't be cursed no i guess within the system like in according to the magical system i guess i mean i guess in a way morella has cursed them in that she's like made a deal with the devil essentially yeah to let biscardi and then Slender by bed. proxy, yeah, <laughs> Cosmaris kill off all these kids so that she can have a son. Jesse, I'm sure you know that just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender, and ability, and other identities. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Start off with race. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty quick because everyone in the whole novel is white. And I did not like that. <laughs> not one bit. I'm not surprised, but I'm also like, this is some bullshit. They didn't describe skin color. Yeah. Hence why we assume everyone's white because it's like just with the typical landscape of publishing is right, right. now. And when you think about like a Victorian setting, like all of our like novels from that time period that have come into like popular culture are from white people about white people. I guess I'm glad that at least they didn't make the like servant class of citizens, people of color, because then I would have been more mad probably. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but maybe it's worse to just like erase us altogether. I don't know. Either way, super white, not here for it. Fuck that. That's all I got to say about race. I think that pretty much sums it up. How about class? Yeah, let's talk about class. We got a lot of stuff for class. There's so much going on (laughs) class-wise here. Class distinctions are at the forefront almost immediately. Annalie calls it a lowbrow superstition that people from the town think that her family is cursed. Not so fun fact about the term lowbrow. It actually comes from 19th century race science called phrenology. It was supposed to be able to like, I know that this person's going to be a criminal because of I can measure their facial features and they would measure facial features like cranium and take right, all these right. different like weird measurements about people's bodies and then essentially use it as justification for why slavery and racism and colonialism and Western expansion, like European expansion was okay. I did not know where that's where that term came from. That's where the term lowbrow comes from versus highbrow. So it's like a race class, like literally just putting those two together, like puzzle pieces. Of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. Unsurprising race class connection. But I digress. The Thomas family are members of the aristocracy. They have servants who take care of everything for them. The father is somehow in charge of the town, it seems, I think, Mm -hmm. and maybe some other towns. 
He seems to go other places maybe to take care of stuff. It seems like he's on some sort of ruling council, right. I guess. So we have a sort of feudal system, it seems like. Like early capitalism right. feudal system where you still have these fiefdoms that are ruled by dukes and their families inherit their wealth. And then everyone else, there's very little social mobility. And right. they just like literally don't have names or any sort of protagonism in the story whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Except for Hannah and Roland. Yeah. Roland was real creepy. He was really creepy. Also a red herring. Yeah. Too many of those, maybe. Mm-hmm. It seems like the Thalmas family got their wealth from shipbuilding and sailing. Or rather, they extract value from workers who actually build and sail the ships while they sit in their castle and right. don't do anything. Right. Because even when there's a shipwreck, the dad doesn't go, correct? correct he sends everyone else all of the able-bodied working class people to go and then he dies in a fire i think the dad dies in a fire yeah at the end the dad dies he died yeah oh i did not catch that meals in charge at the end oh i didn't catch that that complete went over my head who cares he was a bad dad (laughs) we don't even remember his name i mean we do but it's not important well yeah barely there's a classist difference between annalee and fisher who it turns out is dead the whole time anyway but still. <laughs> womp womp. Yeah. <laughs> he seemed all right. Like, fine, maybe. He did seem okay. I don't know. Camille makes terrible comments about herself and her sisters not pairing up with someone who is in the class beneath them. That was just vehemently, explicitly classist. There was a lot of that language that I, f- I found pretty upsetting. I didn't really like Camille. This happened pretty early on in the novel. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, you are trash. But at the same time, she's the one who's like, um, Fisher, hey. Trying to, like, compete with her sister for his affections, for, like, a zombie corpse's affections. Or was this all in Annalise's head? I don't know. We don't know. I'm not sure. It's like Inception. Like, what happened at the end of Inception? Is he in a dream? Is he not in a dream? Yes. Yes, he's in a dream, you think? Yes is the answer to both of those questions. He's in a dream and not in a dream? It's, yeah, up to your imagination, I guess. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure that, um, that that director has told us what happened in the end. I don't know. Well, I watched I it do. like <laughs> once eight years ago. <laughs> I've seen it quite a few times. Not in a dream. So probably shouldn't believe Kelly on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Caine said it wasn't a dream. So there you go. Inception solved. How do we get there? <laughs> I don't remember. Because <laughs> is Fisher real? Not real? Oh, there we go. Don't know. Inception. Okay. Speaking of between classes. So Fisher is of this different class, which you just mentioned. So right. the love, one of the love interests is of a different class. Although he's thrown off as a love interest pretty quickly after we meet Cassius. Yeah, he's he's just kind of like, mm, I don't have any. There's no burning sensations anywhere for Annalie. <laughs> burning sensations. Come on. You should go to the doctor for those. <laughs> Get some antibiotics for that UTI. Yeah. Um, so we do have another interclass relationship between Hannah and the Thalmus daughters and This makes me uneasy. I mentioned this earlier, but besides Roland, she's one of the only working class people who even gets a name. So they're just erased and that they don't even, they're just like a servant came if they even talk about how the food got there. Or like the cook came out to be applauded for the meal, but the cook doesn't have a name, just the cook. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The lack of names underscores the fact that the care work done by women of lower classes is absolutely necessary, especially to support people who are part of higher classes and yet all that labor is systematically erased and devalued or not valued at all and i should add that often this work is done by black indigenous and people of color so 
we need to be supporting initiatives like raising a minimum wage and passing a domestic workers bill of rights agreed i'm a huge downton abbey fan and i think what downton abbey did really well is show the stories of people both like the servants and the family and how they their lives are so interconnected and tied up within each other's like all the servant characters get names all the family gets names like we see stories from the perspective of all of them and in this story which i think feels down to nappy-esque yes but that they don't do well is that we don't see how being in community with each other every day probably all day for the family and the servants would create these connections between them where they actually have relationships with each other which is really unfortunate because i don't think you could live with someone literally live with the servants family living with servants servants living with family Mm -hmm. and not create these relationships with them that are fleshed out especially between these like mother figures Mm -hmm. because we do we've seen that several times right where we'll have like a female identifying i don't know what you call them like a lady in waiting housemaid nursemaid governess sort of figure who is essentially doing this mothering work for a bunch of female characters Mm -hmm. for like protagonists, younger female characters. And I don't know, there's just a lot of intimacy that goes on there with all the like touching, the hair braiding, the dressing, the emotional support, holding space for them, giving them advice. There's just like so much depth to that relationship. And yet it is undergirded by an enormous gap as far as material circumstances and like a huge power inequity going Mm -hmm. on there. To that point, Downton Abbey, what they do, like the relationship between like Anna and Mary is so good because we see how like sometimes Mary is taking care of Anna, even though Anna is like technically her caretaker, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not caretaker, but like her lady or whatever but like they have formed a relationship because they spend so much time together and we don't see that with hannah in this story she's been there for the birth of all of the girls and yet somehow she seems so far removed from their lives and also give her a raise because if she's been taking care of 12 young girls oh my god their entire lives like mm -mm. no no and also it, it gets to the point that it's usually people of color and then also people of a lower class doing this care work for white rich people. Right. And then their kids go get sent off somewhere. Right. right? Like what happens with Fisher. Mm-hmm. Hannah's that's Hannah's son. Yeah. And he gets sent off to go live with this old guy at the lighthouse, which I know Jesse'd be fine with, but <laughs> there's no people there. <laughs> there's no, Yeah. <laughs> that's why I love Heaven it. on earth. Yeah. <laughs> Read books all day. And then they can't take care of their own babies. Right. Yeah. Also, one other recommendation for further reading is the book Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarsina. And it's this is one of those theoretical texts that I want us to dive into maybe at some point in the show. That would be great. It was funny to me, and funny might not be the right word because it's not actually funny, um, that, <laughs> <laughs> that people in a place of class and monetary privilege think people will only like them for what their privilege has afforded them, but at the same time refuse to acknowledge their privilege. Like Annalise saying she would like a simple life with a job, but she has other opportunities afforded to her, which would make it possible for her to live that dream without the struggle that comes along with it. So she's really upset that Fisher gets to be the one to go take care of the lighthouse, but if Fisher's not doesn't have a job, like he can't take care of himself and his family, whereas Annalie would be fine if she never had a job. So it was like frustrating to me to see like Annalie deal with this. But also in the end, she got exactly what she wanted. And I'm like, oh, of course, of course you did. White lady. Ugh. Always get what you want. 
Sorry, not sorry, Kelly. <laughs> Let's talk about gender. There's a lot. Something that I liked gender-wise in this story is birth order decided inheritance as opposed to firstborn sons, which is what we normally see. Blech. Yeah. Morella assumes the men must be in charge and inherit, which I'm like, of course you do. But she's like she's peak white, like like white lady yeah. who's on patriarchy's side. Yeah. But she is a, a really good um, depiction, I guess, of what how we can internalize patriarchy. Yeah, for sure. I would say despite the difference between inheritance law on the islands mm-hmm. where the Thaumas family lives versus the mainland, which is where Morella is from. It's not like the islands have a system that amounts to like the paragon of women's liberation. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Dad slash Duke still has control over the household finances. Like they have to ask him permission to go buy things. Um, and then also over the women's behavior, controlling what they wear, whether or not they can be in mourning, for example, and whether or not they must participate in antiquated patriarchal traditions like balls. Yeah. Where it's basically like an auction block for women. Yeah. No, thank you. No. I'll have none of it. And there were also comments, was it at the churning? I think the the banquet of the churning when right. dad's dude bros are around and he, they make comments about how they need to marry off, how he needs to marry off his daughters so they don't like, quote, eat him out of house and home. So it's essentially just calling these women a drain on resources. They're not contributing anything. They're only good if they're wives and bearing children. But also like, if you didn't want all those kids and you shouldn't have had them, take responsibility for your actions, dad. Why don't you just go like take a trip to Planned Parenthood? Yeah. You can get a vasectomy. I mean, they're not 100%. So like, meh. But still, you have options. Use a condom. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was very hard for me, I guess, to read these parts of the novel where women are just being treated like property over and over and over again. And what's even worse is that these women characters are aspiring to this and right. nothing more. Mm-hmm. They want to go to the balls. They want to have suitors. And that's like really what they're gunning for. That's what they want out right. of their life, which I'm, this is really then gets to these discussions that you and I have in these podcast episodes about like, well, I want to give these women their agency, right. but at the same time, I'm very conflicted. Yeah, their agency is contributing to the fact that patriarchy exists and that affects me, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> and not just me, but like other people. I don't know. That whole churning scene at the dinner was just terrible. Like the dad's like, whoever can figure out what's going on with the shoes, you can have one of my daughters. The dad gets like wasted and all the other like women and is just like shutting up all the other women around him because he he's hits a- Morella. Yeah, that's right. I would have murdered him in his sleep. Or not in his sleep, just in real life. I would have poisoned him a little bit every day until he was dead. (laughs) (laughs) Do what you got to do. You're like a Jenya. I know. By any means necessary. (laughs) By any means necessary. (laughs) I'll take care of me. (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing was just a mess. That was... I don't even... There are no words. Like, I'm just feeling things and don't really know how to express it. Yeah. It was infuriating, really. All the dudes. And I think because of that because like somehow fisher gets dragged into it and he's like on the side of the dude bros at one point it seems like and i know he's dead so like it's not really fisher (laughs) but then we're supposed to see like cassius as comparison to be like he's a good guy like 
not all men yeah and i'm just like <laughs> cassius but who also like figures out the shoe riddle like why yeah. do we care about shoes i'm confused yeah and the girls are like so obsessed with the shoes like it's very like gendered behavior totally. and, I'm just, and the like, dresses and the dresses and cassius doesn't do anything great like the bar is so low for him that we're supposed to think like <laughs> by comparison like he's the best possible option for Annalie and I'm like he's not even that great he's just fine he's fine I mean he's just like not as actively awful yeah I mean yet that we know of exactly I mean he can apparate places and that's like really useful and to he's like me. kind of hot I guess I guess I can't imagine what he looks like but that's a whole different yes. yeah curly hair that's all I got did he oh I didn't even realize that waves there was a lot of twining fingers and at the nape of the neck and the oh. curls okay well whatever curly hair is cool but other than that he just seemed all right <laughs> there are a ton of superstitions related to sailing but women in particular were considered bad luck because they would be distracting to the sailors this is a true superstition, but also brought up in the books when Annalie is looking for whoever is supposed to be Cassius's dad, who's not really his dad, I don't think. Well, we don't know if it's true. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I, don't know I just want to clarify. But either way, the superstitions are still there, which is like... Like IRL also. Yeah. Yes. yes. Historically also. Historically, there's a ton of sailing superstitions, and that is one of them. Mm-hmm. If I'm a distraction to you, that's your problem, not mine. That's right. Fuck off. <laughs> All right, stepmothers. Why do we always get stories about evil stepmothers? I have a, I have an idea about this. I think there's something Oedipal going on. Oh. Competition for male attention. Ugh. Isn't that gross? Yeah, it's about it's like gross. it's between daughters and stepmothers usually. It's yeah. not between sons and stepmothers. Well, and and it's just like female attention or female yeah. competition for male attention. And it's just gross. Yeah. Cause where are all the stories about the evil stepfathers? I can't think of one. I couldn't think of one. I mean, I can think of a lot from like anecdotes that people I know have told me, oh, but like not in, in fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have no step parents. So like I have no idea what step parents are like. It also just seems a little bit easy at this point to fall back on the blended family trope Mm -hmm. as like a source of discord i feel like we've moved a little bit further than that in our i guess cultural moment especially when you think of the fact that so many people come from blended families like my own family i have half siblings and like i don't have any negative interactions with their parents or their step parents or none of those things like i don't think having a blended family is so unusual that this would be i don't know I don't think we we can take it as like a given point of strife necessarily at this point. Right. Especially because Morella kind of, I know she did a bad thing (laughs) like (laughs) or two or a lot, but she does by the end seem to like the girls and seem like maybe she wouldn't be a terrible mom if she didn't like have a demon baby and die and whatever. But she's also actively, oh yeah, she does like just turn into bones. Yeah, which is somehow sex-related, which I also feel weird about because, like, it seemed weird. Why was it sex-related? Annalie, like, makes a comment about, like, the like the ecstasy on her face, like, when that's happening, and then she dies. So it's, like, weird. But she, similar huh. to what she described when she walks in on her dad and Morella having sex. Oh, I forgot that that happened. Which was weird. But oh. also, like, they kind of normalized it, so cool. 
Well, they had like the four poster bed, it seemed like. <laughs> and he just like sticks his head out of the curtains. But also I'm like, lock your fucking doors. You have kids in the house. <laughs> but I thought that it was cool that they didn't make a big deal of the fact that Morella was pregnant and they're having sex. Oh. Like pregnant people can have sex also. That's I just thought fine. that, isn't that normal? Aren't you like supposed to or something? Isn't it supposed to be like I helpful? think you're supposed to do whatever you want. Yeah, but I mean like, isn't it supposed to be helpful for your future birth? I have no idea. Okay. Neither of us know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I don't like this evil stepmother trope. It's kind of trash it's very um gendered and like it feels antiquated like yeah. i know this is based off a of grim's fairy tale but i'm like come on it's 2019 and this is like this weird alpha female mm-hmm. vibe right like the stepmother is coming out of her prime but wants to be in her prime right. and then it's a competition vibe with the daughters who are coming into their prime which is also kind of hard because i'm like this stepmother in this case morella doesn't have any right to anything because Camille's the one that's going to inherit. And it also seems like they're similar in age. Oh, I think it was mentioned a couple times how close in age Morella was to to like Camille and Annalie. Mm -hmm. So. And aren't they like 16? I have no fucking idea. That's another thing with the age is like, I'm not really sure what's going on there. No. Don't know. I'll come back to that. Yeah. (laughs) So Annalie is asked to expose her quote-unquote best assets to find a suitor who apparently has to be a dude uh, even though it makes her uncomfortable and then Morella equates covering oneself with being a child and I just was not into this whole like Mm -mm. showing off your body if that's something you're uncomfortable with and then Morella making the argument that modesty somehow makes you childish and I was just like this whole thing is kind of gross and I don't think the book was advocating for that. No. Well, especially because Morella turns out to be... The bad character, <laughs> yeah. right? So obviously we're not supposed to identify right. with like her worldviews. Mm-hmm. But this was really... Didn't make me feel good. No. I'm like, if someone doesn't want their boobs hanging out, then they don't have to do that. It was like a body shaming. Yeah. But for not wearing, revealing enough clothing. Which I'm not saying that doesn't happen like in our society. Oh, yeah. When you think about like some of the social norms of like going out and going to clubs or Mm -hmm. to bars or whatever. Like, I mean, we live in a college town, so I see girls and like it's fucking cold outside. I'm like, how do you have like, why are you not wearing a coat? But I think part of that is like, this is a social norm that we're going to do this. And Mm -hmm. that's unfortunate, you know, like party culture, I guess. Right which I know nothing about. Whereas like dudes are allowed to wear clothes that yeah. make sense for the weather. Exactly. Which they will end up giving up to the girl at the end because like, but it's just like, you know. so can we just not anymore? Y'all wear a coat if you're cold or don't, if you're not, I'm not saying you can't participate in those activities if that's what you want to do. But I see you out there shivering. <laughs> <laughs> I see you. I see you put a coat on. <laughs> I want to pick back up on this thread that of the competitive dynamic between women Mm -hmm. that you brought up when you mentioned the stepmother trope. Just this competitive dynamic. I just am like over it, I guess. Yeah. Pitting women and femmes against one another Mm -hmm. because that's just what patriarchy wants. Yes. It just furthers patriarchy's aims. And it's like stereotype confirmation, mm-hmm. you know, that whole like cat fight sort of thing. Right. Because we see Camille and Annalie, like there's some weird competition for Fisher's attention. And but also then... Cassius is when Camille ends up sitting next to Cassius at a dinner, at the churning dinner. Exactly. 
And then again, like I mentioned, competing for the father's mm-hmm. attention with the stepmother and the daughters and the like, who is he taking seriously? It seems like there has to be sides to right. those sorts of things. And that the arbiter of who's right and wrong is the dude who gets to decide. Mm-hmm. And I, ugh, this is just an unsettling and upsetting to me. I'm just way more about like an abundance mindset when it comes right. to my relationship with other people and especially other women in films. Right. And also, if Camille doesn't like Fisher or Cassius, honestly, like, why would she be in competition with her sister? They don't seem competitive in nature, the two of them. Mm -hmm. Like, it didn't seem real to me that they would compete for Fisher slash Cassius when they don't seem competitive about anything else. Right. It was just odd. Mm -hmm. It was just, like, thrown in there. I kind of assumed that that's how they would behave. Especially when, I think at the beginning of the novel, Camille has, like, her eyes set on some other dude. Like some sailor dude. Mm-hmm. So why would she even do that to Annalie? Because they seem close. Yeah. Otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then Camille totally turns on her at the end. But that was maybe in all, of, maybe in Annalie's head. I don't even know. Well, I think that was like a, co- she could see Cosmaris influencing the fact that Annalie had made all these things up or whatever. Um, but yeah, I just didn't believe in the competitiveness between them. I don't have, I mean, I have a half sister, but she's so much older than me that like we never could have had this kind of dynamic maybe this is happens to sisters sometimes i don't i I couldn't say i don't know i don't know i feel like we can it can happen like in friend groups sometimes between women and and it can happen and i don't know i've seen it in graduate school okay for sure but i don't i'm just no thank you just no not anymore but also if you're like if you don't like this kind of thing, you can fight against it. You don't have to, like, let this happen. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not here for the competitiveness, Mm-mm. unless you're like bowling or something. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about ability? Yeah, let's talk about ability. Um, let's start by saying. We want to open up a conversation about this and don't want to have the last word on right. this. So feel free to contact us on the social meds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's social media. I know. I knew what it was. <laughs> Kelly is the new Phoebe Robinson. <laughs> um, is that a Friends reference? No. I don't know what that is. Um, Phoebe Robinson is a com- comedian. She wrote a book called You Can't Touch My Hair. Oh, I know who Phoebe Robinson yeah, yeah, is. Yeah. Yes. From yes. Two Dope Queens. Yes. And she loves to shorten words into like these <laughs> like social media into social meds. She would do social that. She is you. You are her. You guys are kind of similar, actually. Hmm. Uh, Got to read sense. that book. It's so good. Would highly recommend You Can't Touch My Hair by Phoebe Robinson. She has a new book out called everything is trash <laughs> i think i've heard of that i haven't one. read it yet but it's on my list that sounds like very much like what you say all the I time know, i know i love her <laughs> okay back to ability back to ability it felt to me that mental health was handled very poorly in this novel and that was one of my biggest disappointments one of annalee's sister is said to have gone mad when annalee stops making sense to her family they say the same is happening to her and there's talk of annalee being sent away because they think she's gone quote unquote crazy mm-hmm. not for help but to be separated from neurotypical society be like we don't want you anymore goodbye yeah 
I know the story is taking place in a different time, but there is literally fucking magic. I think the author could have handled it so much better, especially the scene at the end where Annalie is having a fit, hitting herself and banging her head on the floor. I'm not saying those things don't happen to people with mental illness, but Annalie is actually neurotypical. Just because the setting is Victorian adjacent doesn't mean things have to be handled in the same way they would have been then. I think this could have been handled with much more nuance and care, and I don't think it was at all. I agree with what you with a lot of the things you're saying. And I think for me, one of the reasons why this is so important and such an important aspect to talk about is because mental health is such a driving force behind the novel's plot. Mm -hmm. And I was disappointed by the fact that the novel doesn't seem to explicitly send a message about how wrong the depicted treatment of mental health was slash is. I think literature can certainly depict oppression and suffering because of certain identities. And in this, in the case of this novel is mental health, but I just don't know how, much I support there being like a gray area when it comes to the interpretation right. or like the what the novel like where it stands I guess mm-hmm. on an ethical and moral level like in our contemporary political and cultural moment I think it's imperative for the books that we read to come down firmly on the side of liberation right even if there were a character that stood up for Annalie mm-hmm. who has made this clear that writing people off as quote mad or crazy mm-hmm. is terrible and discriminatory and ableist right that even if like the presence of a, a voice like that in the within the like frame of the novel i think would have helped right this a lot but like not a cassius rescue because no. his gross dude saver complex reminded me of resand which is going to be an unpopular opinion that's real rude <laughs> <laughs> kelly's gone too far <laughs> I wonder if sensitivity readers were contracted for this novel. Maybe that would have helped handle mental health with more nuance. It seemed like also they were, the depiction of mental health was mixing a lot of different symptoms of different kinds of, Mm -hmm. um, what would you say? Types of not being neurotypical. The hallucinations or seeing things that we would commonly see associated with schizophrenia or voices, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of dissociating mm-hmm. happening. There was it, like nightmares, PTSD, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. The six-year-old is drawing corpses or however old she is. I don't have no idea. Doing her own like goth art therapy, which is pretty cool. Yeah. But also the fits, self-harm. I don't know. It just, it seemed like it was all trying to smush together. This is what people who aren't neurotypical I don't know. It was just like a a pastiche, I guess, of all these different symptoms. Which is made even more difficult by the fact that Annalie knows so much that's going on with her is not real. And she is neurotypical. And it almost felt mm, like pretend, you know? Mm -hmm. And I I didn't like that aspect of it at all. I would say, from my standpoint, it doesn't seem like a sensitivity reader was hired to read through this book. But, I mean, it's possible. I am neurotypical, so maybe. Maybe it just seems offensive to me. But (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think it was handled well. The mental health struggles, or what seems like it, what Mm -hmm. masquerades as, it's essentially enchantment, right? Masquerading as mental health struggle. Right. And it's one of the biggest points of conflict Mm -hmm. between the characters in the novel. Then it's like a literally deus ex machina because they're gods doing it to pe- to humans right. and they're just like oh she's dead now mm-hmm. the the bargain the deal has been broken and so now right everyone's quote unquote normal and not quote unquote crazy anymore right. 
Right. And things go back to normal and we're all neurotypical and yay. Yeah, I just didn't like that aspect of the novel and I don't think it was handled well. Mm-mm. There could have been ways to handle it really interestingly, I think, or to, to not write off those characters because the like Verity, who's been getting those nightmares, she's the one who you know people write off because of her age and then right. also because of like how weird, I guess, all of her drawings and stuff are. But she's the one who really knows what's going on from right. the beginning. Right. Well, and... They don't ever really deal with the sister who went quote unquote mad. Yeah, you lolly, right? You la- you lolly? No, a different one. <laughs> Ava? Maybe. Because we do have a mention of suicide in this book that goes completely un- unexplored. Yeah. Several mentions of suicide. So it would have been interesting to see what had actually happened with this that sister. Maybe Ava. I don't know. So we don't really explore like, was she influenced by Cosmaris? Was she actually dealing with mental illness? Like, what's going on in the story we're just not giving any information about that and i think that would have helped mm, like navigate the mental illness in the story much better if Mm -hmm. we had seen the way like the family i don't want to say dealt with but like the way they lived and helped ava with her mental illness or like Mm -hmm. how they handled that i agree with you that the fact that it was all like that's the magic of it and Mm -hmm. you can just lift the veil and it doesn't exist anymore well, it's kind of like the miracle cure that we have seen in other novels coming mm-hmm. up again, where it's like, oh, it wasn't really mental illness. It was really this person, like influ- like this god influencing a person. Like, they're fine. Everything's fine. It was all magic. Cured. Now. But the legacy of that and the people thinking a suicide happened, you know, that mm-hmm. lives on in the mind of the community, I guess. Right. <laughs> No one in this family has gone to therapy, which they all need to stat. Oh, my God. They should have starting, like, with the death of their mother, Mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. Especially, like, Verity thinks it's her fault her mom's died and it's her fault that there's a curse. Like, that's fucking awful. Mm -hmm. And then they're just like, oh, no, don't worry about that. Yeah. Rather than being like, "Mm, let's talk about that. Yeah. Agreed. What are your thoughts, listeners? Yeah. Come at us. Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about sexuality, asexuality, sex, romance, and relationships, and sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. I felt like, meh. I didn't really feel any attachment to Annalise slash Cassia's ship. I thought it was odd that she initially had a thing for Fisher, and then as soon as she meets Cassius, he's her guy. Like, maybe that's normal. I mean, she's a 16-year-old girl, so sure. I guess you, your feelings mm-hmm. kind of change kind of rapidly or whatever, but it was just kind of blah. Because Cassius is such a similar name to Cassian, I kept wanting him to be Cassian, but he was not. Me too, but he's like not quippy or like cool or like super jacked and good with knives. <laughs> <laughs> he is not. A- <laughs> and like tortured and uses humor to like play off how tortured he is. Oh my God, am I Cassius? Oh my God, I think you might be. Cassian. Oh my God. Cassian. You're not Cassius. You're no. way less blah. The story is super heteronormative. It assumed all the girls were married boys. We don't have any queer characters. I would take this a step further and say that the story is oppressively hetero. And we don't really get that in a lot of the YA books we're reading. Mm -mm. Like, even when I think about City of Bones, which is the oldest of the books we've read, we had a queer character. At least one more in the future. (laughs) And we didn't have, like, protagonists who were exclusively worried about dancing with boys yeah like that's all that the girls cared about in this novel they didn't seem to be like too worried about not dying 
it was very escapist, right? They didn't want to be mourning anymore because their whole lives had been shrouded in death, which I think it was like, that would have been really interesting to explore, right? Right. Why, like why Verity is so goth and yeah. interested in that sort of thing. She's been mourning her whole life. Death isn't weird to her. Yeah. That's like such a missed opportunity, I think, to explore that. And because the female characters could have been interested in lots of other things besides getting together with dudes and we don't see any like with the exception of verity who has a hobby which is drawing and she's drawing like gross dead people love it (laughs) yeah i'm like this is cool also scary because she's a child and like children are creepy um (laughs) (laughs) like you know like when children do it it's weird yeah it's creepy for some reason exactly but what hobbies do they have there's like one girl who likes to read like smut novels which i'm like here for but also that's so like tied up in romance that i'm like what the fuck do you guys have going on in your lives otherwise like nothing they're super rich they don't have to do anything Ugh. being rich sounds awful <laughs> it doesn't really you could use your money for such good things annalee plays piano played piano with camille, oh, camille. it's all these like very salon type downton yeah. abbey i'm sure they do like hobbies. fiber arts which is cool but like you know for the prob- collective come on yeah <laughs> i don't know it was just like nothing else y'all got nothing else and it's just even more sad given that it's just preying on what these girls wanted cosmaris was with the dreams right and it turns out they're just dancing alone by themselves in their rooms which, Which also is just like, like really sad, it's, but also could it's have sad, been. sad, but like cool. Like you can dance by yourself. That's fine. I was doing that the other day. It's so liberating. I do it all the time. It's awesome. Yeah. Another point that I wanted to bring up is that there's so much potential in this book for awesome feminist spinsterness mm-hmm. that, alas, went unexplored. Which I thought we would get at the end because yes. Annalise, like, you know, Cassius dies and she's at the lighthouse and like. She's taking care of Verity, I think. Like, Verity lives with her. or The like, Graces. The Graces. Yeah, something. Whatever. Honor, mercy, and Verity. Yeah, yeah. Verity means truth. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Yep. She's the only one who knows what's really going on. Maybe we should have thought about that earlier in the book. I did. Everyone. I wrote it down. No, no, no. I'm talking the characters in the book. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe we should have. Well, why would they? It's just a name. Hmm. <laughs> They're not reading a novel. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has meaning in real life. <laughs> But either way, there's just like so much potential there for Annalie to have been the spinster character taking care of her sisters, living and working at the lighthouse. But then Cassius isn't dead. And I don't know how that happened, but whatever. Or if everyone's in mourning, right? And there could have been like cool spinstery right. going on. Like pursue your hobbies. You're not into, you You know, but also, aren't going to get guys. So just do your own thing. They've had so like five years of people dying and they're like, we want to go to balls. And I'm like, who the fuck wants to go to a ball when your sister died like a week ago? Like, maybe you're trying to protect your mind from, like, all the sadness and, like, oncoming depression that's happening. And that's why you get so obsessed with, like, this other thing. It's, like, a way of, like, coping or <laughs> not coping. And not to, dr- to, like, not dread your own horrific death. Right. But at the same time, I'm, like, I'm not sure I'd want to go to a dance. You couldn't convince me to do my hair or a shower or any of that stuff. Oh, yeah. That's just, a- that sounds like a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, I don't understand the obsession with balls. And I'm going to leave that double entendre to just simmer (laughs) in this novel in general. Yeah. Balls, like dances, (laughs) seem cool when I see them on TV and stuff. But I'm like, I would never want to like wear a corset, which is fine if other people do. I don't want to. Or like. Or like having a dance card. 
I don't know. Part of me thinks that sounds really cool. And the other part of me is like, what if I don't want to dance with you? But the fact that there were so many, because it didn't seem like you had to, you could say no. Right. It it seemed like as the the women, they just wanted to be able to dance with people of the opposite of like, not their gender, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that they couldn't ask those people to dance. Yeah. Or there was like, that was socially frowned upon. I don't like, ugh, gross. When I was in middle school, I used to love dances, which I know sounds. You're an anomaly. (laughs) (laughs) You're a unicorn. They were so much fun, but they were something where you would like be together with all your like for me, it was girlfriends, like friends Mm -hmm. that were girls. (laughs) And like you would dance together and it would be like fun. And like I would eat like a ton of candy and it's just like running around, like getting rid of all this like school energy. And I thought that was super fun. But that's not something you get here where you get to just like hang out with your friends and dance with them. Like you had to be dancing with some dude or whatever. So it kind of takes all the fun out of dancing. I'm not really interested in dancing with dudes. So (laughs) (laughs) that's like also a missed opportunity. Like the girls aren't actually in relationship with each other when they're at these dances. They're just like, who's next dude I'm going to dance with, which was annoying. We can talk a little bit more about the sister relationships. What do you think? They're like, those are the friendships. There's no other friends. None at all. Like the other pseudo friend is Fisher, who they haven't seen in years. And then whatever dudes come into their life that they like want to be paired with. Like I said, I don't have sisters that's close that are close in age to me. So I didn't like grow up with sisters. I grew up with two brothers, but like we were friends, like we did stuff together and there was some competitiveness, but not to this extent. I don't know. Anyone mm-hmm. out there who has sisters, maybe they can shed some light on this. Especially if you have 11 other sisters, uh, like in this book. But also at the same time, big families like make me think of 12 kids is so many that I start to think of like, you know, those people who like have kids, like a ton of kids and like don't believe in birth control because they're like building the army of God. <laughs> and I was just like, this is too many kids. I couldn't keep them all straight. The sister dynamics just didn't seem realistic to me. I guess that there was just some unexplored depth is what I would say there. Yeah. And we didn't spend enough time with any of the sisters who weren't Annalie, Camille, and Verity for them to actually feel like fully fleshed out. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't as a reader as upset when others died. Well, not only that, what's the point of having all those other sisters if you're not going to actually give them space to be alive? Like, what what did we need 12 of them for? Right. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) We needed like four or five. It didn't seem like the number, if it had a significance, if the number 12 had a significance, it wasn't made clear to me as a reader. No. Actually, I'm pretty sure the number 12 has significance in literature in general. I don't know what that significance is. But if it's not communicated within the like container of the novel, then... Then it doesn't really mean much to me, the reader. Right. Or you're not going to be able to guarantee that the 12 makes sense to your readers. Right. Yeah. Exactly. How old were the youngest daughters supposed to be in the novel? I think you're right that Verity, actually Verity must be like five, in which case she is like very highly verbal (laughs) for a five-year-old. And really good at drawing. Yes. Which (laughs) that seems like less ridiculous to me than how well she can speak. (laughs) I think the graces must be, I don't know, they're coming out, which I thought didn't really happen until you were like 16. I thought that was Rose, I thought the triplets were coming out. Oh, aren't the triplets the Graces? No, those are two different. Oh those are two God. different sets of kids. The Graces are Honor, Verity, and Mercy. 
They're the youngest. The triplets are in the middle. Lenore, Legia, and Rosalie. And then we had Camille. Or no, then we had Annalie. And then we had Camille. And then we had Eulali. And then they had Ava. And then Elizabeth? I don't know. I don't even... I've lost count at this point. But no, the triplets and the graces are two different things. Oh, I didn't know that. So the youngest daughters, I think, are supposed to be like, I don't know, six, eight... The triplets, if Annalie is older than the triplets and is 16, it's like a word problem. It's like we're doing a word problem. I hate word problems. Me too. But we're going to see this through. I think the triplets, the ones that... They're coming out. They must be like at least 13 or 14. Okay. Yeah. I think. And the I, Graces are the youngest. Youngest. And I think Verity's like six or something. But Verity was the last child born. Right. So Verity's the youngest. And yes. before her are the Graces. And I think Verity, it's been no, like... Verity is a grace. Oh, what? Oh, my God. The triplets are different from the graces. The graces are not triplets. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> See what we mean about 12? <laughs> it's too many. It's so many. I'd also like... Yeah. I'd like a family tree also. Yeah, we need both a family tree with ages and a map. The reason I asked the question about age is because I was pretty taken aback by the blatant sexualization of what seemed to me to be prepubescent girls. I agree. Especially in the light of all this like sexual predator Epstein child rapist stuff in the news. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. like, wait, what? Now, maybe it makes sense for the time because I guess you would get married earlier. It would almost make more sense to me if the girls felt this way about themselves as opposed to society seeing them this way. Because I do think when you're young, at least for me and my experience in my group of friends, we always thought we were much older than we were always try, like pushing those boundaries of what's acceptable of you know in terms of like sexuality from people our age and that doesn't seem odd to me if it was just the girls but they were all the girls were for the most part pretty like modest as far as sexuality goes like they didn't really talk about kissing boys like the biggest deal was that they were reading these romance novels so but where's like, their like sex ed then at the romance novels Depends on what you're reading. It could be great. could be perfect. could be really good. Yes. It could be reading Sarah J. Mass. <laughs> I'm not sure that would I would consider perfect. No. A lot of, <laughs> not perfect. A lot of burning in the core. Maybe you have a UTI business. <laughs> <laughs> core burning? I'm just going to imagine it's a UTI. Yeah. Now. Or something else, you know. Yeah. But I'll, either way, go the doctor. <laughs> it was weird. It seemed like inappropriate sexualization. Yes. And I, it's hard to articulate why. I think it's because they're children and we probably shouldn't sexualize them. <laughs> like, I think you've done it. I think she's done it. That's it. <laughs> I figured it out. I figured it all out. Don't sexualize children. That's not what's supposed to happen. It's not allowed. It's not appropriate. And you should go to jail. <laughs> and prison abolition. Yeah. We can, yeah. we can take multitudes fine yeah well you know what i believe that if you if we want jail to be a thing it should be rehabilitative and not punishment so you need rehabilitation definitely there we go sexy times nope (laughs) there were some makeout scenes but other than that i was actually kind of like i wanted less romance in this book i wanted it to be more about their hobbies and their spinster like spinsteriness and why they're everyone's so goth and why everyone's dying and are they actually cursed and the romance didn't seem necessary yeah i think why in general especially you know i don't i haven't read 
maybe no YA written by men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like mm, series of unfortunate events, that's children's book. I think that's yeah that counts as middle grade right I think so so I've ne- I've read no YA written by men oh yes I have I've read one and it's Scott Westerfield's the ugly series there's some romance in that but I would say for the most part YA is written by women and they all have romance at like the center of the novel at their burning core at their burning core <laughs> <laughs> But like a novel like this one, I don't think demands it. Of Like the story doesn't demand it. Right. And I don't think we needed it. I would have been okay without it. I might have been happier without it. Same. Because we would have lost that competitiveness between the sisters. We would have lost the obsession with balls. Yeah. We would have lost Cassius, which I'm like, that's fine. He's not Cassian. So like, fuck him. <laughs> like, I don't care. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. First of all, excellent book title. House of Salt and Sorrows. I wanted to pick it up. I thought that that was really intriguing. And when you think about like the setting and what's going on, the title makes 100% perfect sense. Definitely. And I also thought Craig crafted a really intriguing opener for the novel. The funeral scene in the crypt captured my attention from the very beginning. I wanted to know who died and why. I wanted to know more about the morning rituals. I wanted to know more about the family and everything. This definitely kept me reading. Yeah, I 100% agree about that. There are 12 sisters in the novel, which we have mentioned a ton of times. (laughs) And that was a lot for the sake of the story. I couldn't remember who they were, what order they were in. There's evidence of it on this recording. It wasn't very clear. And I think part of that is because of that 12 dancing maidens or whatever that Grimm's fairy tale that this is based off of. But I don't think we needed 12 sisters. Like I said before, it it was too many and they weren't fleshed out enough for me to keep them separate in my head. Right. I think that the uh, these sorts of retellings change a lot of things about the source text. Mm-hmm. I guess this would have been one component, the number of daughters, like the right. sheer number of characters where it could have deviated from the source text And I think it would have made the adaptation stronger. Right. Especially when you think about Grimm's fairy tales, they're not super long. So you, you don't really get down in the mud with any of the characters necessarily. Like you're not super connected to them. So it might be easier to do 12 and something so short because Mm -hmm. you're not going to form a connection with one in particular, but because we're following the story from Annalise perspective, it almost seems like some of her sisters, super important. The rest of them don't need them. They're not super connected to her in any way also, right. which was unfortunate. And I think there's also an important, it's important to notice, I don't think it's random that we have a, a large group and it's all daughters, mm-hmm. right? It's not 12 sons, it's 12 daughters. Mm-hmm. And kind of like this, I guess, underwriting sense that they're interchangeable or that they're just like right. one group and that there's no individual characteristics, nothing separates them from one another. And keeping that number so large, Mm -hmm. I guess, that's something that clearly the author did not want to do and wanted to combat, Right, I think. The characterization was was going more towards actually differentiating these girls from each other and giving them autonomous personalities. Mm -hmm. But uh, the number made it difficult. Like, it would have been difficult for anyone. Right. But at the same time, I'm not sure that it's, like, done very well in the way that like trying to make the sisters like separate entities Hmm. because then we're also grouped the triplets and the mercies together Mm -hmm. in such a way that 
one, I think I forgot that the graces and the triplets were not the same. But also, when you group them together like that, I don't feel the need to remember who they all are. Because I'm like, oh, they are a group together. Mm-hmm. They're like one and the same. So what's what was their different? Like, I know the triplets, one of them died. But other than that... Two of them died. Do two of them die? Yeah, they all go like dance out into the cold and die. Oh, yeah, you're right. Two of them die. Mm-hmm. See? Can't even remember who died because <laughs> so many people died. <laughs> the epilogue did not make any sense to me. How did Cassius come back from the dead? We know there's magic in this world, but we have no proof that it can bring back people from the dead. And mm-hmm. Annalie uses her wish to bring back Cassius and not one of her sisters. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I would have. That's pre- pretty messed up. Yeah. Like you have one sister who's part of the triplets. I don't remember which one, but she feels like she has lost her connection to the world in a way. And you're like, let me bring back this dude that I kind of like that I've known for like two weeks. I would have preferred it if Cassius didn't come back at all. It wasn't explained. Like, that just, like, wrapped up too fast. And he's, like, ended up being a demigod, and that happened out of the blue. I might have been more fine with that because it brought more magic into the world because magic existed and, like, it wasn't all just in their heads due to Cosmaris. But I was like, who uses their wish to bring back some dude that you've known for, like, two days? And you have, like, five sisters (sighs) that are dead. And, and your dad <laughs> <laughs> and your mom yeah that didn't that just seemed like it was trying to tie it in a, like a, a cute little bow but the bow is actually very frayed and betrays yeah. a lot of i don't know i guess problematic thinking underneath like i'm all for an hea like for a happily ever after but at the same time this one just didn't make sense to me it just felt out of nowhere and unnecessary this book says it's for 12 and up but i thought it was pretty creepy 12 year old me would have had nightmares after reading this book with the things that what's the youngest ones verity (laughs) with all the stuff that verity was drawing like it was super creepy to me and i was just like i'm not sure i'd let a 12 year old read this those are some of the most intriguing parts of the book for me actually that was where it really tapped into the mm-hmm. horror genre and horror adjacent, right? It's the kid right. who is, people are like, what do we do with this kid who's kind of weird and who's drawing a lot of dead bodies? It gives you those horror story right. vibes. I guess it just, it didn't go far enough to make it all the way that. Well, especially because so much of it got t- taken back right. because right. of the visions or whatever. Exactly. But I agree with you that 12 seems a little bit like on the young end because of the violence right it seems that it would skew a little bit older i think so and maybe the violence isn't the right word Mm, gore yeah because of like the dead sea turtles and the like i don't know it was very like all of the the hallucinations the weeping faces the way verity is drawing the bodies like they're all broken the explicit gory detail i right and props to craig for the way that she wrote the novel I could see how those bodies looked in the Definitely. pictures. That yeah. that was really well done. Part of me wonders, I'm not sure how publishing exactly does like the age grouping for things because this book says 12 and up and then Akatar says 16 and up and not that they could go much further than that because YA cutoff is like 17, even though most people reading it aren't young adults. So maybe 12 and up is like the next down from 16 and up. Yeah, just how those like categories happen to work mm-hmm. in the publishing industry. Yeah, yeah. Which... I mean, they're arbitrary. Like, it also depends on the Mm -hmm. young person that's reading it. Totally. I wouldn't have read this as a kid. I'm sure other people would have been fine. I got, like, 
creeped out by like goosebumps though so. neither of us were too were super into horror or are super into horror mm-hmm. as a genre and i think that there it does as a genre has a lot of cool tropes and conventions mm-hmm. you know it's stemming from gothic literature right. in the 18th centuries 19th century i think that it's like a really fascinating autonomous genre right and way of creating narrative in and of itself but it's just not my wheelhouse right it's it's not what i go to for entertainment i'm more interested in it now that jordan peele is making movies right (laughs) i guess i did read those in elementary school so pre-age 12 do you remember those that book and it's like black and white on the front with like red letters and they're like scary stories or whatever the stories to read in the dark or scary stories to yeah which i guess they're making it into a tv show or movie or something i do remember reading those they were like big at sleepovers oh do you remember that i like, didn't read it at sleepovers i did reading by myself <laughs> it's not a group activity <laughs> for me that book was really creepy when i was a kid like i remember one yeah. of the stories had like a spider laying eggs in someone's face and like all these spiders coming out and i guess that was in my school library you know, I could have read that anytime mm-hmm. between kindergarten and fifth grade. So maybe it's all right. I think it's one of those things where we don't really know how to recommend the age that a person should be mm-hmm. when you're reading content that's explicitly sexual or content that is explicitly like violent, violent or gory. Right. I guess because it's so much depends on the on the maturity level of the person. Right. And that's kind of hard. And how much of a dialogue you're going to have about it. Yeah, exactly. Did your parents talk to you about like the books that you were reading? Not at all. Okay. My parents didn't know anything about the books I was reading. Okay. Did your parents talk to you about the books <laughs> you were reading? No. <laughs> I'm not even sure they knew what books I was reading. Exactly. Same for me. You know. I read so many of them. I'm sure they couldn't keep up. Oh, yeah. Of course not. But also, I had babysitting money, so I would just buy books, whatever I wanted. Exactly. Yeah. Like I was reading Kate Tiernan in middle school, which I loved. I love Kate Tiernan. Like, they're very short books, but they're... they're the characters are like Wiccan, which is super cool. Love. Like real magic. But now that I'm a little older and I was rereading them recently, I was like, oh, this is a little mature. Like these kids are, they're like in high school and they're like having sex and stuff. And I was like in middle elementary school, which might be, depends too soon. We haven't figured it out as a society. I don't no. think. But also we don't have kids. So it's not something we really have to worry about. <laughs> Recommend if you like. Supernatural thrillers, I would say. Psychological thrillers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have no other recommendations. I don't really read horror or thrillers because they give me nightmares. But it was good for us to branch out. Yeah, I didn't have any nightmares while I was reading it. That's good. Yeah. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did you interrogate a concept or a system or trend that you hadn't before? What about you? You go first. I absolutely loathe the idea of someone hoping they'll have a specific gender of child, like baby. And we see this with Morella. She really wants to have a boy. And I have encountered this in my real life with people having kids. And I just hate it. It's just terrible. Like, you don't know how your kid's going to identify when they grow up. You should just want to have a happy, healthy baby and nothing else. I saw this tweet, and I'm sure it's lost to the black hole that is Twitter mm-hmm. now at this point. The so. trash fire. That is Twitter. <laughs> but it was it was a it was a pretty good hot take, I think, because it's like with the stereotype that girls are easier to raise than boys, yeah. and it's because oh, I saw that all of your it's because you're ignoring your boys and not fulfilling their emotional yeah, needs. Yeah, well, because you just do the boys will be boys, and that is the end of that, which is such bullshit. Oh, it's terrible. 
boys should be held responsible for all of their actions and deserve emotional fulfillment oh and God. development. Well, it's why they like I we see in our society lots of men who feel like they can't you know show emotions they have to be strong like all those stereotypes of what it means to can be. have access to intimate relationships yeah, that yeah. aren't you know like overtly sexual mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's pretty bad but also i think i hate it because i think there is a sense of disappointment when what you don't get mm-hmm. like what, what you don't have isn't what happens and to me i'm like oh it's so terrible to start out your childhood already being a disappointment to your parents <laughs> That's just some heavy stuff. (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) And especially because it's not something the child can choose. No. Yeah, there's just nothing you can do about it. And just like gender is a fucking construct anyway. And how they identify when they grew up might not be the gender they were assigned at birth. Like sex assigned at birth. Yes. Sorry. Sex assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm just like, you don't know what the future holds for you or your child. If you want a child, you should have one, but you shouldn't want a specific kind (laughs) it just seems like too much to me i have very strong feelings about it yes you do (laughs) my real talk goes in a completely different direction okay so we're gonna about face let's hear it i'm not really sure how to say this so i'm just gonna try i think one reason the book didn't quite land for me is because i wasn't sure what the novel was trying to be or what it was trying to do It's an ambitious project, and that's absolutely clear. I just felt like I had a sort of readerly whiplash, I guess, between old-school gothic literature, Victorian vibes, mystery, more contemporary horror, immortal gods versus mortal human dynamics that also seem related to bargains from fae folklore, the religious aspect that, like, seemed pagan and also Greek mythology-y... And I'm not trying to say that, like, combining all of these elements could never work, but I found the particular execution of it in this novel disorienting as just from a reader's perspective. That said, I definitely want to read future books by this author because I'm really intrigued by the combination of elements that she's using. And I think that that could push YA fantasy or YA-ish, whatever this is, fantasy in different directions. I like how this is different than anything I've read before. But I wasn't, it wasn't really clear what the novel was trying to do for me and I think part of that is that so many of the books that we've read for this podcast and some of the most popular books in YA at the moment are trying to tell us something like there seems to be an underlying message that we're supposed to get from the story and it's dealing with bigger social issues and this book doesn't seem to be doing any of those things it seems like a story for a story's sake which isn't bad that's a good point I didn't think about it that way but I don't think it's something that you or I read in our personal time or for the podcast very often that a story that's just a story and there's no bigger picture Mm -hmm. thing going on here. It's not trying to comment on ableism Mm -hmm. or writing off people as quote unquote crazy. Yeah. Or even dealing with feminism and patriarchal discourse going on in this world. Or dealing like with femicide, Mm -hmm. right? Like men's violence against women. Right. The book doesn't seem to actually say anything about those things that are happening in the novel like in a moral sense it's not taking a stand Mm -hmm. as I guess it's not taking a stand as directly as I wanted to and it's not like I want my books to tell me what to think Mm -hmm. I just want to know where the book stands I guess right when I think a lot of times we end up bringing up a lot of philosophy in this book and like what it means like what morals mean and morality Mm -hmm. and those sorts of things and this book doesn't really give us the opportunity for that because it doesn't seem to be saying one way or the other what society should be doing or ought which is odd for us yeah 
Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be taking a break for a bit to recharge and glow up the podcast, but we'll be back October 1st to discuss The Infinite Noise by Lauren Shippen. In the meantime, listen to our previous episodes, send us your suggestions for future books, and check in with us on social media. And thanks to Scones and Tomes for starting a Goodreads book club to read along with us. We'll link to the book club in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at JKMagicPod. Post or tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading. Do you have an idea for a book that we should add to our TBR? Email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Please spread the word if you know anyone who would enjoy the podcast. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling benevolent, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. We have a few ratings and reviews already, but we'd love to see more and hear from you about your thoughts. JK It's Magic is recorded on the land of Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho Native peoples. Until next time, stay magical. Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobes. <laughs> <laughs> wardrobes? Maybe it's multiple wardrobes. I don't know. The slippers and everything seem to be really, I guess, mm, maybe I haven't had enough tea today and that's why words aren't happening to my <laughs> face and my brain. <laughs> Caffeine. Caffeine. In the meantime, listen to our previous episodes, send us your suggestions for future books, and check in with us on social some- Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>